come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. listeners to episode number 105 of journey with a cinephile a horror movie podcast as always i'm your tour guide here of david garrett jr recording out of columbus ohio now if you listen to my episodes when they drop this one's coming out a little bit delayed because i went on my honeymoon and didn't get a chance to get this episode all kind of sorted out before i got back so i decided to take a little bit of time get everything recorded. I actually had to watch one of the featured reviews before I could even, you know, kind of get things started. So this is why it's coming out a little bit delayed. If you just listen to them whenever you get a chance to, then you don't have to necessarily worry about that. But as I was saying, like I did get married, went on my honeymoon to Maya Riviera, Mexico, and now I am back and everything should be getting back on track after this weekend here. So for this episode is going to be my Italian horror number nine. As I have featured reviews of All the Colors of the Dark and Fear Street Part 1, 1994, which was supposed to be on last episode, but I decided to do a quick change and it's going to be the featured review here. And also on this episode, I have mini reviews of Ghostbusters 2, Psycho, the original one from 1960, There's Someone Inside of Your House, On the Trail of Bigfoot the Discovery, The Nightmare Before Christmas, and Night Shoot. Don't necessarily think there's a whole lot more I need to get you up to speed with here in this, you know, very brief intro. But what I am going to do really quick is get you over to my monthly review. So this is going to be one of the busier months, if you could imagine. Here is everything that I did in this month. I watched 44 total films. 43 of them were horror films, and I realized I made a mistake when I finished one of them on the airplane. And then for new horror films, I watched eight. And then my percentage of horror is 97.73%. And what I was going to say about the... I've never actually had a perfect horror month, and I was hoping it was going to be this one, but, you know, I digress. So then, the movies that I watched in the month of October were Scars of Dracula, Midsommar, The Horror of Frankenstein, The Last Matinee, The Strange Case of the Man and the Beast, Ghostbusters, Halloween 1978, The Secret of Sinchani, Bones, Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers, Shin Godzilla, Titan, Ghostbusters, the 2016 remake, Halloween, the 2018 remake, Kill Baby Kill, 
The Addams Family. Now that was the live action one. The Pit and the Pendulum. Alien Mortuary, Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, Blood Harvest, The Black Cat, Possession, Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers, Adam's Family Values, Halloween Kills, Big Driver, Monster of Frankenstein, Four Flies on Grey Velvet, Prince of Darkness, Get Out, Fear Street Part 1, 1994, Multiple Maniacs, Raw, Birdemic, Shock and Terror, Birdemic 2, The Resurrection, Ghostbusters 2, hack lantern Last Night in Soho, Psycho, There's Someone Inside Your House, and Scream. Now, 14 countries are represented with the United States, United Kingdom, Sweden, Uruguay, Argentina, Canada, Japan, France, Belgium, Australia, Italy, Iceland, Poland, and West Germany. Now, the 2021 watches are The Last Matinee, The Secret of Sinchani, Titan, Lamb, Halloween Kills, Fear Street Part 1, 1994, Last Night in Soho, and there's someone inside your house to make those the eight that I watched. The oldest film that I got to see was The Strange Case of the Man and the Beast from 1951. The average year is 1996. Now, this is one of the craziest things. I had six 10 out of 10s that I got to watch. Now, a lot of these are watched them with Jamie. Either she had never seen them or she wanted to watch them. So those are Midsommar, Ghostbusters, Halloween 1978, Alien, Get Out, and Psycho. Now, the lowest rated that I watched was Birdemic 2, The Resurrection, which I gave a 0.5 to. Now, there's only one that's not featured on this feed here, and that's Kill Baby Kill. Now, that's featured for Movie Club Challenge over on the podcast Under the Stairs. Now, I have two bonus episodes that we put out this month where I did Ghostbusters and its remake with Jamie, and then we also did Halloween 1978, 2018, and Halloween Kills as another bonus episode. So then just to do my yearly totals here, I have 55 2021 watches, 300 horror films, 364 films total. My average year so far is 1998. The average rating is 7.5, and the percentage of horror is an 81.23%. So I think that's all I need to kind of get you up to speed with here and to kind of fill you in for my monthly review. I'm going to go ahead and get you over to a very brief break before I get into those mini reviews, and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. Journey with a cinephile and for my first mini review of this week is going to be ghostbusters 2 this is from 1989 it was directed by ivan reitman and then it was co-written amongst dan Aykroyd and harold ramus who also came up with the characters this stars bill murray dan Aykroyd, and sigourney weaver this is a action comedy fantasy sci-fi film that i also consider to be horror with a lot of the elements that they deal with here this is from the united states it is currently sitting on a 6.6 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being the discovery of a massive river of ectoplasm and a resurgence of spectral activity allows the staff of Ghostbusters to revive the business. So this is a sequel that I probably had seen more than the original, at least growing up. This is one that was on the movie channels all the time. Jamie and I decided to watch this movie as she had never seen it, and I had never watched it with a critical eye. So this is kind of an interesting one to watch that way. And it's also interesting to watch this as well with someone for their first time without any sort of nostalgia for it like I have. With that out of the way, this movie seems to be lacking that charm and spark that we had in the original. Before I get into my issues with it though, I want to start with some positives. I love the idea of our villain in this movie of Vigo, or I guess our entity here. While watching this, I noticed that there were some aspects of Gregory Rasputin. Looking up some trivia, I've also figured out that they're combining that with Vlad the Impaler. I like this idea is that he had a curse and it is through the painting which he's able to come back. 
the slime that seems to be associated with him is good as well. I never realized until doing this review is that it's ectoplasm, and that's from the synopsis. Now, my first issue pops up here. Having the slime that gains power from people being angry, being in New York City is great. What I think we need here is why is it there, though? Like, what started it? I think this is something that needs to be given to us. Has it been under here for years? Is this something new? There doesn't seem to be any correlation between the two outside of the painting reflecting this river once it's kind of looked at under some spectral type instruments and stuff. I don't need everything, but there's a leap of logic here that doesn't just work for me. And to circle back to something I was saying though, this movie is lacking that charm like the original one had. I did see some more trivia that some people involved with this project thought that the effects took over. Something I noticed is that they weren't as good. The Scolari brothers look monstrous and they should have been more human for me. And now these are the two ghosts that come back while they're in the courtroom and everything. I think they should have looked more like how they did in real life instead of looking like these cartoonish type creatures. They aren't horrible. I do want to say that. They're just not as good. I thought the cinematography was fine. I did want to give credit there. Now going from all of that, I'll take this to the acting. I thought Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, and Harold Ramos are all good here. They don't have as much as it feels like this time around, but when we get their banter, it's, you know, on point. Sigourney Weaver was solid, and I was glad to see her back. I did like what they did with Rick Moranis and his character of Lewis Tully, giving him a little bit more meat on the bone. He's now part of the crew, and I could also use more of him as well as Ernie Hudson. I did like having Peter McNichol here. I also thought that... Wilhelm von Humburg. I thought he was a good look for the villain. I do kind of feel bad that they overdubbed him with Max von Sydow, who was good. Then we also have Harris Eulen, which I did think he was good as this angry judge. And then Kurt Fuller as this jerk person down in, you know, the mayor's office and everything like that. I thought they were all fine. So in conclusion here, this movie is a step back from the previous one. There are some good things that I like with Vigo and even the slime that is powered by anger in New York City. My problem, though, is that there are jumps in logic that you need to fill in here. The acting is good, but it feels like they didn't focus on it. The effects are fine. There aren't as good as the original, though. Other than that, I thought the soundtrack worked. This movie just seems to be lacking that glue to kind of bring everything together like the original one did. And I'm going to say here, I don't hate on this one because it is a sequel, but I just feel like if this one came out first, it wouldn't be as strong, and I don't know if we would talk about it as much. So my rating here for Ghostbusters 2 is a 6.5 out of 10. Then up next for you, I have Psycho. This is from 1960. This was directed by Alfred Hitchcock. And then the writers here are Joseph Stefano did the screenplay. And this is based on the novel by Robert Block. This stars Anthony Perkins, Janet Leigh, and Vera Miles. This is a horror mystery thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a... 8.5 on IMDb and a 4.3 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being a Phoenix secretary embezzles $40,000 from her employer's client, goes on the run, and checks into a remote hotel run by a young man under the domination of his mother. So this is a film that I have fond memories of. My mother showed it to me when I was growing up and despite not liking black and white films then, I enjoyed this one quite a bit. I thought the twist was absolutely amazing and cultural significance of this film is immense. I've seen this movie many times throughout the years, and with the last few times in the theater, I even took Jamie, and she had never seen this version as well. Now, something I want to start with is that something I didn't notice from previous viewings for this movie is that, you know, first thing is it's absolutely amazing if you couldn't tell. But I, I noticed that Marion changes her mind with what she's going to do in this movie, 
after she speaks with Norman. So what happens with her makes this even more significant with what they're trying to do here. Now, most of us already knew the twist even before seeing this movie, just because it's so iconic, but I love how it changed cinema and influences great films like Scream. And then going along with that is, I'm not going to spoil what's wrong with Norman, but we get something that's not necessarily the textbook type thing there, but the final images that we get in the fruit cellar in this movie and how some of what's going on here influences stuff like Dress to Kill going forward is quite interesting as well. Now, the acting to this movie is amazing. Perkins is perfect as Norman. The novel has him overweight and kind of greasy looking. So I think this is even more unnerving that they have, you know, Perkins who has that, you know, boy next door looks and seems quite harmless. Knowing what he is capable of makes it much scarier. And then Vera Miles along with John Gavin, as they're just trying to figure out what happened to Marion is perfect. I think Janet Lee is amazing and what happens to her is iconic for cinema to come. The rest of the cast rounds this out for what was needed as well. So we have a runtime here of 109 minutes, but it doesn't feel like it. We move through plot points at a good clip. I even thought that it was interesting that I knew the outcome of the mystery, but even this time around, I was focusing more on things that I haven't noticed in previous viewings. The only thing that I didn't like is a psychologist who is explaining Norman and his psyche. I don't mind it to an extent, but I think it goes too far. It is interesting, though, getting into Giallo films because they took this concept, and then you also have villains across genres doing it as well. The final image of Norman is great as the actual reveal happens as well. Now for the effects, there aren't a lot of them. A lot of this goes to the time period and what they could show. The shower scene is amazing and we never actually see the knife penetrating due to the great editing, but we feel like we see it. The blood is good in that the water is you know, washing away some of it and the splatters look realistic. The final image of the film has cool effect that I had never noticed until some of these later viewings. The film is shot amazing. I come to expect that, though, when you see this as an Alfred Hitchcock film as well. Then something else is how great the score is from Bernard Herrmann. I actually listen to this one when I'm writing because the music sets the perfect mood, and there are just some scenes that aren't even scary as to what we're seeing, but the music just gives it an unnerving feel and gets my anxiety going. The music cues during the shower scene are also iconic. So now with that said, this is a classic. It is important for many genres, and it helped to spark the slasher films that would come a couple decades later. There's even the issue of man being the monster in mental illness. It is shocking what it does with a popular actress like Lee, and quite iconic as well. The rest of the acting is great in the story overall. There's not a lot in the way of effects, but what they used were great as how the film is directed as well as edited. The score definitely helps for this film and also quite amazing. If you've never seen this classic, I recommend giving it a viewing. Even if you know the reveal, it is fun to try to pick out different things to reinforce it. I would say that this is as close as you can get to a perfect film. So my rating here for Psycho from 1960 is a 10 out of 10 if you couldn't tell. And I also watched There's Someone Inside Your House. This is from 2021 and is available on Netflix. This was directed by Patrick Bryce. It comes from the novel from Stephanie Perkins and the screenplay by Henry Gayden. This stars Sidney Park, Theodore Pellerin, and Aja Cooper. This is a horror mystery thriller film that is from Canada and the United States. It is currently sitting on a 4.8 on IMDb and a... 2.4 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being, The graduating class of Osborne High is being targeted by a mass assailant, intent on exposing the darkest secrets of each victim, and only a group of misfit outsiders can stop the killings. 
So this movie that I heard about through an October movie challenge that I was doing, this would be the 22 Shots of Moods and Horror Challenge. It was a bonus watch, and I thought the premise sounded interesting enough. Plus, it was a 2021 release, so I got to watch this on the flight down to my honeymoon. But aside from that, I didn't know a whole lot about what this was, you know, coming in outside of what I relayed to Jamie to see if she would be intrigued about watching this. But I ended up watching this one solo. So what I will say is that we have an interesting concept here for a slasher film. Not necessarily original, but interesting. We don't get a lot of great modern slashers as this genre is one where most of the best ideas have been used. This movie knows that and uses it to its advantage to some extent. I like that we get a meta feel here where our main character of Alex states that she doesn't have a secret outside of running over a fisherman and tossing him into the ocean, of course referencing I Know What You Did Last Summer. This movie is also based off a book, so I'm wondering if that is a reference or just, you know, giving it a nod here that they both are movies that have a, you know, a premise that is, you know, a slasher. Moving from there, I love the long knife that is almost like a machete used by the killer and the fact that the mask is ever-changing to whomever the killer is targeting, and I'm assuming that a 3D printer is being needed here for the mask. The references to I Know What You Did Last Summer doesn't stop there. We have this idea here once again that people have secrets and the killer knows that. Before they are killed, they must face it. In my written review, I go through what Jackson, you know, has to go through where he hazed a fellow teammate on the football team so hard that, you know, he injured him quite a bit. But then we also have another one of Katie, who is a closet racist. Makani was part of a terrible accident in Hawaii, and some of the other characters just have encounters as well. I like this idea. It also brings up red herrings like it could be, you know, our deputy of Larson, who's portrayed by Andrew Dunbar. Since the killer uses a taser and they can do background checks and, you know, the police are able to do that. Sheriff Atkins is another one where there's talks of disbanding the police force and Mr. Sanford, you know, bringing in a private company to police the area. Alex believes that it is Ollie and there are more people that you wonder about as well. The idea of secrets also creates an issue for me. There are a lot of people who will hate this movie as, you know, woke propaganda. There's a transgender person who gets bullied. We have the white girl who is spouting racist things in secret, so she gets murdered for it. It is interesting that Mr. Sanford collects Nazi memorabilia for similar reasons. Do I believe that all these people could live in this area and not realize it? Absolutely, but I also think it might be a little bit overblown. This is a possible that these all these people are here, but for me, I think it's a little bit exaggerated as well. So then from there, I'll shift over to the acting. Park is solid as our lead. I did like seeing her deal with her dark past. She just wants to have a normal existence, but with the killing surrounding secrets, it makes her anxious. Palerin is fine as our main red herring. I'm not saying this to spoil the movie, but the movie is leaning so hard into him being the killer that it was pretty obvious that he most likely wouldn't be. He has a good look to make you think that, though, as well. Cooper is good as our judgmental friend. Then we also have some people in here like... Dale Wimbley, who is our rich kid who just wants to be normal, but actually a bit weird to fully fit in. We also have Jesse La Toretta, who is our transgender character that just wants to be treated normal as well. Her friends do, but the rest of the school doesn't. Aside from that, I think we're getting you know caricatures that are a bit over the top, but I guess it's needed for a movie like this as well. So then from there, I'll go to the effects, cinematography, and soundtrack. For the former, this movie was a little bit more brutal than I was expecting, and I like that. We get an Achilles cut, a solid death, and a confessional, and there's even a sword in this. I wasn't expecting it to go as vicious as it did, which did help me to enjoy this movie more than I was expecting. The cinematography was solid enough as well. I had no issues there, and I thought the soundtrack has some solid indie music that works. 
not really my vibe in music, but I think it fit for the movie, and it was a positive there as well. So in conclusion here, this is a solid enough slasher film for me. I do think it's catering more towards the times, and it feels like I know what you did last summer for the teens of today. As a fan of more adult horror, I can appreciate the kills that we get here and even some of the commentary, but do I think the message of this movie is being pushed too heavy-handed? Yes, to an extent. This message is very relevant, though, and presenting it through a slasher is a way to do that. I don't think this is great, but I can appreciate what it's doing, so my rating here for There's Someone Inside of Your House is a 6.5 out of 10. And then up next, I have another documentary from Seth Breedlove that is On the Trail of Bigfoot, The Discovery. This is released here in 2021. He is the writer and director of this. I'm not really sure because there isn't an IMDb page at the moment for it, but I do know he also features in this, and there are some experts that he ends up meeting up with here. So I will end up giving you just a very brief synopsis here of the biggest breakthrough in the search for Sasquatch has been found in northern Washington. Documentarian Breedlove heads to the Olympic Peninsula where he finds the Olympic Project a Bigfoot research group that have found the best evidence of the existence of the creature. So this is another documentary, as I was saying, from Breedlove and Small Town Monsters as they continue the search for proof of this creature. This one, of course, takes them to the Pacific Northwest. Now, this one picks up where the last one left off. I have not seen all the documentaries in this series, but I do think that Breedlove doesn't bog you down with information that you've previously been given in ones prior, so I almost feel like it's better to watch these in order. This can be problematic if you jump into this one, though. I also don't think that necessarily matters though either. This one is contained to give you the information for this search and not so much the history of Bigfoot in the area or just the lore in general. Now if you've heard any of my other reviews or read any of them about his documentaries, you know that I'm not fully a believer in this creature. What I will say is though is I'm not going to discredit him or any of the people that are featured here as I feel like they've seen and experienced is real. I cannot discount what they saw as well as I cannot explain it either, so what they're doing is just relaying it in my opinion. That is a disclaimer that I felt you needed to have here before I move on. So with that taken care of, we have another interesting documentary. This one starts with getting to know someone from Forks, Washington that stated they saw a creature that he couldn't explain and it fits what we think of Bigfoot. We then get to meet different members of the Olympic Project, which is based near Olympia, Washington. The big thing here for this group is that I love that they've extended invites to a few different types of people that have credible professions and the information that they bring to the table is hard to refute. They have a photographer that has a degree in anthropology. There's a land surveyor as another. We also have experienced hikers, hunters, and campers as well. What they are presenting here does seem to follow the scientific process to prove, or at least in this case, rule out logical explanations to different things. They do discover something in the woods that makes for a good argument that a creature like this could exist there. Now to close how this was made, I love the documentary angle that Breedlove uses. He seems like a believer but doesn't go biased with his creation of this work. He is out there, interviewing different people and just presenting what they are stating. It doesn't feel like he's pushing the audience to necessarily believe, but giving the information and allowing the viewer to decide. It is a professional look at, that I really enjoy here. I do like interjecting a bit of drawings here to give you a better feel of what the people are saying. There's some music synced up, but we get to hear recordings as well as what people cannot explain. So in conclusion here, this is another interesting documentary from Breedlove. There is evidence here that is quite interesting, and how it is presented is in a way that I don't feel like is being biased. It makes me wonder if what they are telling us has a logical explanation other than Bigfoot. As someone who is interested in the subject as a mythological angle, I can definitely appreciate what they're doing here. 
I don't know if this will be for everyone. We aren't getting the history of the creature per se, but more of just what this search for the creature is, you know, giving us in this location. If that sounds interesting, I definitely would give this one a go for sure. My rating here was a 7 out of 10 for On the Trail of Bigfoot, The Discovery. And then up next, I got to watch on November 1st, The Nightmare Before Christmas. This is from 1993. This is directed by Henry Selleck. It comes from the characters and story from Tim Burton. The adaptation is Michael McDowell and Carolyn Thompson wrote the screenplay. The main voices here are Danny Elfman, Chris Sarandon, and Catherine O'Hara. This is an animation family fantasy musical. I also consider it to be horror. And this is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 8.0 on IMDb and a 3.9 on Letterboxd. With the snubs being Jack Skellington, King of Halloween Town, discovers Christmas Town, but his attempts to bring Christmas to his home causes confusion. So I'm not going to go ahead and break this down too much as I did cover this last year and part of the reason that I rewatched it is that this is my wife and I use elements for this movie for our wedding which we just you know recently had. It's a yearly tradition to watch and just a great Halloween Christmas movie that we watch on November 1st and you know my favorite stop motion Disney film at this time as well. Part of the reason I really like this is just that it has good heart to it. There's horror elements, and I just love how the characters are played, and the song just helps solidify my feelings there. These songs are actually on a playlist that I listen to regularly, and I'm not ashamed to admit to that. I don't think it's a perfect movie, but it's great regardless, and that's why we have now started watching it every year. So my rating, once again, for The Nightmare Before Christmas is still at a 9 out of 10. And my last mini-review for this week is going to be another screener that I got to watch for Night Shooters. This is written and directed by Mark Price. And then this stars Adam McNabb, Nikki Evans, and Rosanna Holt. This is an action film from the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 5.4 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being a group of filmmakers who find themselves on the run from a violent horde of criminals after witnessing a brutal gangland execution. The problem is their building is slated to be demolished the following morning, so time isn't on their side. So this is another movie that I was saying I got the chance to check the screener out. It's interesting is this movie is actually from 2018, so it's been doing its festival rounds. I'm just assuming it was having some issues getting distribution. Now, I really only had read a little bit of a synopsis when the screener was seeing if I wanted to check it out. And, you know, that was about it. But I, what I did know intrigued me. So what is interesting here is that our crew is trying to make a zombie movie called Dawn of the Deadly. From the little bit that we get of it, it looks to be cheesy fun. Now, the effects look good, and they're done by Ellie, who's portrayed by Holt. The director is a jerk by the name of Marshall, portrayed by McNabb, and he's carrying on like he's making a masterpiece instead of a low-budget horror film. His director of photography is Jen, who's portrayed by Caitlin Rordan. Has a pretty good eye, actually, for what she does. And then the assistant director is Kim, portrayed by Micah Proctor. Now, she's quite mousy, and there's also an annoying sound guy of Oddbod, who is portrayed by Nikki Evans. And then there's also the drunk main character who is named Harper, portrayed by Doug Allen, who gets a little bit handsy with Ellie and ends up regretting it. There's also a stunt guy of Donnie, portrayed by Jean-Paul Lay. Now, their night is complicated when Tarker, portrayed by Richard Sandling, shows up with his henchmen at a building right across the way. His nephew was killed by the guy that he has tied up. It appears that he also burned the nephew alive, so these criminals believe for what they're claiming happened, but they go about killing the girl that he's with and then torturing him. 
Things take a turn when Tarker and his men realize that the film crew saw what they did. They have to take care of this before the night ends, or, you know, they're going to risk law enforcement being brought in. The crew, though, won't go quietly and fight back to survive. So since this isn't a horror movie, and there isn't a whole lot to the story, that's where I'm going to leave that recap there. Now, where I want to start is that the title of the movie is clever. It is a bit of a pun, which I appreciate. This film crew is doing a night shoot, and Tarker shot the girl in the beginning at night. There's also a bit of a double meaning that I just kind of wanted to point out here. Then to actually get into breaking the story down, I think we have an interesting premise here. I've worked on a film set like we have here. There's a minimal crew and many people sometimes are doing multiple things to ensure that everything is done. It gave me a bit of nostalgia to that feeling. It's interesting is the people using their talents to survive. Oddbod noticed at first that there's interference. He thought it was cell phones that was causing it, but the building is wired to blow. Marshall is a jerk for not warning them, especially with some of the effects that Ellie is using. Oddbot is also using their microphones as a way to communicate with each other, but they're also using it to monitor where the gangsters are coming at them from. Ellie uses squibs and other effects to help survive. My favorite character, though, would be Donnie, who uses his martial arts abilities. Now, to shift this slightly, though, the premise seems a bit convoluted. The place is rigged to blow is part of the story, so as to how, you know, Marshall could shoot there and why Tarker is killing this guy in this building. The evidence of the latter will be covered up by the rubble. This also becomes their plan to getting rid of the crew. And I also state here, Marshall got the permit to shoot here for cheap, or they're just shooting here without the knowledge of anybody, which is, you know, part of what gets them in trouble, possibly. The explosive also make it why they can't use guns, as they are cheap and can explode easily. It's a bit convenient, but I can get past that. Now, that should be enough where I'm going to go over now to the acting. I thought the cast was solid, to be honest. McNabb fits as his jerk director. I like that Evans is an annoying sound guy. Holt is attractive and also a tough woman. She's probably my second favorite character. Lai is solid as a stunt guy who becomes a major asset as it gets tougher. Rodan is also solid. Proctor's character is interesting as I knew there was going to be an arc here that we would get from the beginning. And then Alan is another jerk in the beginning but is humbled by some of the things and comes around for me. Aside from that, I thought Stanley was good as our main villain and his crew is a bit bumbling, but I come to expect that. None of the acting is great, but it works. So then the last thing I would go into would be effects, cinematography, and soundtrack. For the former, the practical ones we get are good. They do some interesting low-budget stuff that I liked. They do some things as well that got a bit repetitive. Almost like they didn't know what else they could do and they kept going back to the same thing that they could. My problem, though, is that there's some bad CGI. It is used here when we go with explosions. It doesn't ruin the movie, but it does hurt it for me. The cinematography is solid and looked good. Soundtrack didn't stand out to me music-wise, but I did like the use of microphones and stuff with the sound with Oddbod, and it was an interesting idea to use. So with that said, I thought this was a solid enough action film that was a premise that's a little bit out of the normal. It doesn't have the deepest story, but it also doesn't need it. The acting was good enough for something like this. There's also some good practical effects here, but we did get to see the same thing over and over again with the CGI and, you know, that not being good. This also ran a bit too long in my opinion. Other than that, this was shot well. The soundtrack was fine with the use of sound being the best part there. I would say this is just over average for me. More fun than I was expecting, so I will give credit there. So my rating here for Night Shooters is a 6 out of 10. So that's all I have for mini review. So I'm going to go ahead and get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. Drink this and you will be free.
Spettacolo di Debuglio fu un film che nacque sulla scia di alcuni miei film precedenti che avevano avuto successo come Lo strano vizio della signora Ward e La coda dello scorpione. Oggi io l'avrei fatto diversamente, io quando mi vedo lì come attore, madonna, dico non è possibile. Se mi dice bello quel film sul paranormale, ma non è un film sul paranormale, era un film contro il paranormale. He had no illusions to be in any sort of auteur. She offers herself. Free her from fear. And my first feature review for this week is going to be All the Colors of the Dark. This goes by the original title of Tutti ai Colori del Boio. This is directed by Sergio Martino. Santiago Moncada came up with the story, and then the screenplay was written between Ernesto Gastaldi and Saro Scavolini, and then the English version by Louis E. Sinali. This stars George Hilton, Edwidge Finich, and Ivan Rasimov. And we also have Julian Ugarti, George Regatta, Maria Comono Quasimodo, Nieves Navarro, Marina Malfatti, Luciano Pigzoli, Dominique Basharo, Lisa Linardi, Renito Chiantoni, Tom Felighi, Vera Drudi, Carla Mancini, Gianni Puloni, Harold Cohn, and Cesare Di Vito. This is a horror thriller film that is a co-production between Italy, Spain, and the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 6.7 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis here being a woman recovering from a car accident in which she lost her unborn child finds herself pursued by a coven of devil worshippers. This movie that I heard about when I got into podcasts, part of the reason was that I didn't know about the giallo subgenre until then. I knew a little bit about Italian cinema, but it was more of just like zombie films that my dad had on VHS and, you know, kind of similar type movies to that. And then in college, a little bit, I got into some of the cannibal films as well. But this is one of the bigger titles that was a bit of a blind spot for me. So I'm watching it here for Italian Horror Month, and I do need to watch more of Martino's films as well. So we'll start off with this man as a director. He has 55 credits. Of them, I've seen three. All Our Horror with the Strange Vice of Mrs. Vard, which will come up quite a bit here. This movie here, and then Torso. He has 11 total that are on the list to check out, like Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I Have the Key, The Suspicious Death of a Minor, and Scorpion with Two Tails, just to name some of them. Then moving to our writers, I'll start with Mankata. He has 44 credits, and this is the first of them that I've seen. 10 are in the genre, and it looks like I'll be seeking out more of them, as one is A Hatchet for the Honeymoon with Mario Baba. Now, another writer we have here is Gastaldi. Now, from him, I've seen six of his 97 works. His first was one that I watched last year as part of my journey through the aughts with the vampire and the ballerina. I've also seen The Whip and the Body, The Strange Vice, Short Night of Glass Dolls, this movie here, and Torso. It appears that he worked with Martino quite a bit, so I'll be seeing more of him as well. And then Scalovini is another one that I've only seen one of his 23 movies. In horror, it's only been this, Your Vice, and The Fishman and Their Queen. All of those look to be with Sergio Martino. 
Now I'll take us over to the acting, as I have, first will be Hilton. He has 68 credits, and I've only seen two. Now those ones are The Strange Vice and this movie here. Now he did six in total in genre with like My Dear Killer, The Case of the Bloody Iris, The Killer Must Kill Again, and Dinner with a Vampire. And then I want to shift over next to The Beautiful Fenage. She has 76 films that she's been in. I've seen four so far. Eight of hers are in the genre, and those are the ones that I have watched as well. Now her first was The Strange Vices, followed by this. I did see her in Strip Nude for Your Killer, which was the first featured review on this podcast. And I didn't realize this, but she's also in Hostile Part 2, which would kind of make sense with Eli Roth and, you know, his love of the genre. Then finally, we have Rasimov. He has been in 39 movies, and I've seen four of them. 14 are in horror of his. His first, though, was Planet of the Vampires, which I also believe is from Mario Pava. Now, the first one I saw him was, once again, Strange Vices. Now, he was also in Jungle Holocaust which I did watch that one in college, and then he was also in Spasmo, which I watched for Where to Begin with Giallo, so I have seen, you know, those as well. So when we get in this movie here, we have an interesting montage that is, you know, given to us out of context. We see a pregnant woman on a bench. She is rubbing a weird liquid on her stomach that looked kind of like blood, but it's also a little bit more thick. There is a woman in a bed, and she's being attacked by a man with a stiletto. He has odd blue eyes. We also see another woman that is acting funny. It then shifts over to a stretch of road that is moving down quickly until whatever we're following crashes into a tree. I found this an effective way to convey a bit of our synopsis and get us up to speed without, you know, necessarily just telling up, actually letting us see it. Then from here, we're following Jane Harrison, who is portrayed by Fenwick. She lives with her boyfriend of Richard Steele, portrayed by Hilton. As the movie goes on, it makes a point to confirm that we know that they aren't married. Jane has nightmares, and what we see is what she dreams of. He is a representative that sells pharmaceutical drugs. Now with her condition, he recommends her taking one of the items that he sells, which he says is like a vitamin. She doesn't like how it makes her feel though. Now Jane has a sister of Barbara who is portrayed by Navarro who thinks her better option is to see a doctor that she works for. This is a psychiatrist. Jane is starting to see images from her dreams even when she's awake. This is causing a strain on her relationship with Richard. She is even more terrified when she sees the man with blue eyes in the waiting room for Dr. Burton who is portrayed by Regaud. He doesn't believe she actually saw this man, but Barbara does confirm that there was a man meeting Jane's description before she went in to see the doctor. Now, she continues to see this man everywhere she goes. In the process, she meets her new neighbor of Mary Veal, who is portrayed by Mofadi. The two of them hit it off, and Jane confides in her. She has another way to help her, which will lead her to a cult that is practicing rituals nearby. They're led by J.P. McBrien, who's portrayed by Ugerti. At first, it seems to be helping, but things take an even darker turn, and Jane isn't sure what is real and what isn't. So ultimately, my recap for this movie. Now, where I want to start is that this is an interesting take on the giallo. We aren't getting one in the traditional sense. Jane is questioning what she has seen and doesn't know if she is dreaming things or if they're actually happening. She also doesn't know who she can trust. Jane needs to figure this out before she is killed in the process. There is a reveal at the end that I don't necessarily need, but it does raise the stakes a bit. We don't really have a police investigating things here either. So this is a giallo that knows what it is doing while being strong enough to work in the frame without being too formulaic in my opinion. Because I mean we do obviously have our character of Jane as she is looking into everything. So there's an investigation there. There's people around her telling her that she needs to give it up. And there is technically a killer that is following her. They're not really wearing black gloves and we know what they actually look like and everything like that. But we don't know who they are. So where I think I'll start next will be the character of Jane. She reveals to Dr. Burton that the nightmare that she has didn't start with her miscarriage. 
She hasn't told this to Richard, as she doesn't think he will believe her. He is a jerk of sorts, so I get where she is coming from, actually. What I like is that her nightmare turns out to be something that happened to her mother. In her search for what happened to her, it will explain this as well. Jane is bothered by her miscarriage, though. I didn't want that to be a thing that you didn't actually think kind of played back into stuff here. Richard believes he is helping, but he's not. He seems a bit too wrapped up in his own life and with work to fully give her the attention that she needs in her time. Barbara is there for her, though. It also seems that Mary wants to help along with Dr. Burton. Not everyone is who they seem, though. Fennich does an excellent job in this movie, and she can just do a lot with her facial expressions, and she's just gorgeous, so, I mean, that doesn't hurt, and we get to see her nude quite a bit, as that's something I kind of feel like you needed to know here. So next I want to delve into this cult we see in the movie. They get introduced when Mary believes that they will help Jane let go of her feelings. Their ritual is quite surreal with what they do, and I almost got vibes of, like, Rosemary's baby from it. Now, initially, Jane thinks it helps. I don't believe in the supernatural, but I do think there's a psychosomatic effect to those that do. This is short-lived in the movie, though. The deeper that she gets into it, the more she isn't sure what is real and what is a dream. I like, though, that this movie doesn't lean too much into making us think she's crazy. There are two times that either Jane or another character confirms what she's saying is true. This is a trope we see a lot today, and I like this movie being from the 1970s, and it's bucking this idea, though. Even at the end, we aren't fully sure if something supernatural is happening or not. That is something that just works for me. So I think that's enough for the story, so I'll take this over to the acting. I've already said my piece on Fennich, who is great. I like the role that Hilton has in this movie. We aren't sure if we can fully trust him or not, and that adds to the red herrings along with the helping of the mystery. Rasimov has a menacing look. We don't know if he's real or just part of Jane's fantasy, which is interesting. Ugarte has an interesting look. He is similar to Rasimov's character of Mark Coogan. Ragad is good as this doctor along with Navarro, Malfatti, and the rest of the cast. There is enough mystery for all of them that just adds layers to the story for me. So in the last things I'll go into here would be the effects, cinematography, and the soundtrack. Now for the former, we don't get a lot, but what we do look good. I was surprised that they were weaker compared to some of the things that I've seen though, so I guess I should say they looked fine. This movie relies more on the story, so that works for me what they're doing there. Most of the kills are done with a stiletto or they're just off screen, but... It is more of a mystery, as I've said. The cinematography is amazing. Martino is a director that I'm fairly new to still, but along with Miguel Fernandez Mila and Giancarlo Fernando, they shot the heck out of this movie. The montage and surreal things they do is on point to convey in the story, but the soundtrack definitely helped there as well, which is also great because this movie definitely is more atmospheric. So before I close this out here, I'm going to go ahead and do just a little bit of trivia from the IMDb page is the clothes that the female cast members wear were provided by a fashion house for free in exchange for their names to be listed in the credits. Martino discovered the mansion where the cult rituals are held while scouting locations in England. He was originally considered shooting this film in Ireland before that. Martino was injured in shooting a sequence set in a car for this movie. Rasimov had to wear blue contact lenses for his role as Coogan. The opening credit sequence was shot at Twilight, and the Italian censorship visa was 59784, delivered on February 24th of 1972. So in conclusion here, this is a movie that I'm glad that I've finally gotten around to seeing. It is an interesting giallo that isn't as formulaic as others that I've seen, and I give credit to that for Martino for how he could tell a story. Benich's performance as Jane helps there, as she doesn't know who she can trust, the acting around her is good, the cinematography is amazing and conveying what they needed to along with the soundtrack. Effects are a bit lacking, but it isn't that type of movie though either. There are just some things that work for me with this cult and Jane's mental state, but this is one that I'm also excited to revisit now that I have watched it. 
So my rating here for all the colors of the dark is going to be a 9 out of 10. I'm not going to do a spoiler section, so let me go ahead and get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. Dude, what the hell? This is exactly why you have no friends. Look, some gal killed a bunch of people at the mall last night. Holy shit. Another shady side tragedy. Fits the narrative, right? Sarah fears that. Christ, not you too. There's no angry dead witch. The only thing that made him go crazy is this town. The dude was wearing a Halloween skull mask. How is that not fun? Guys, I think there's someone in the woods. We're together for one night, and dead people are trying to kill us. Maybe we are doomed. She was so sexy, but so crazy. Normal bitches don't bleed black blood. I'm looking at you, witch nerd. You can't stop it. And for my second review is going to be Fear Street Part 1, 1994. This is from here in 2021. This was directed by Lee Janik who also helped come up with the story and wrote the screenplay, along with Kyle Killen came up with the story, and then Phil Day helped with the story as well as writing the screenplay with her, and these are based upon the Fear Street books by R.L. Stein. This movie stars Kiana Madria, Olivia Scott Welch, Benjamin Flores Jr., while also featuring Julia Rywald, Maya Hawke, Charlene Amoy. David W. Thompson, Noah Bain Garrett, Daryl Britt Gibson, Ashley Zuckerman, Jana Allen, Fred Heikinger, Matt Burke, Christian Bridges, Matthew Zuck, Jeremy Ford, Jamie Mathias, Danyan Huntington. This is a drama horror mystery film that is from the United States and Canada. This is currently sitting on a 6.2 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a circle of teenage friends accidentally encounter the ancient evil responsible for a series of brutal murders that have plagued their town for over 300 years. Welcome to Shadyside. So this is a movie that I was interested in checking out due to the buzz from the horror communities that I'm a part of. I'll be honest, I was into the Goosebump books, but never got into Fear Street. By the time it came out, I was already reading more adult novels, so I missed them. I was a fan of R.L. Stein, regardless. So before I jump into the movie itself, let me do some featured notes here. So start off with our director here of Janik. She actually has done four films. Her first was Honeymoon, which Jake and I covered over on SideQuest Podcast, if you want to hear our thoughts there. And I did enjoy that movie. Now, she did all three of the Fear Street films to round out her filmography, and I'll end up watching them all before the year ends. Now, as a writer, she has the same four as well. Her co-writer of Killian has three credits. I've seen an earlier work of Scenic Root, which flirts with horror to me. This is technically the only one in genre for him. Then the other writer of Grazia Day was the same four movies that the director does, so they've worked together previously quite a bit. 
As for our actors here, I'll start with Madria. She has 18 credits. The first thing that I've seen her in was a film called Level 16, which was a sci-fi film that flirts with horror. Six of her films are in genre, with the first being Night Before Halloween, which was from 2016. This is the only other movie that I've seen her in. Now, her co-star of Welch has five credits, the only three for her in genre, and the only one that I've seen here is the Fear Street film. Finally, we have Flores. He has 13 movies that he's been in. I've seen him in Ride Along and Transformers The Last Night. These three are his only ones in horror, and I've only seen this one here. So for this movie, we start off at the mall. We have Heather, who is portrayed by Maya Hawk, is selling a book to a customer who's a little bit rude. They are shutting down, and she gets spooked and asks a guy of Ryan Torres, who is portrayed by David W. Thompson, for a ride home. He works in a different store and is a little bit weird. He agrees to help her, though. He just has to finish closing up. The problem, though, is that she is attacked by a killer wearing a skull mask. She succumbs, and it turns out to be Ryan under the mask. He is then shot by the sheriff of Nick Good, who is portrayed by Ashley Zuckerman. We then shift over to meet our main character here of Dina, portrayed by Madria. Now, she's up before her alarm, and she is mad at her ex of Sam. There is a bunch of her stuff in a shoebox, and she is trying to come up with a note to make sure that Sam knows how she feels. From here... She makes sure that her brother of Josh, portrayed by Flores, is up and ready for school. It is there that we meet her friends of Kate, who is portrayed by Raywald, who is a cheerleader, and then Simon, who is portrayed by Heikinger. Something of note here is that Kate used to sell drugs, but got out of it when Simon's brother overdosed. She is getting back into the game, though, with Simon's help. It should be pointed out as well that Dina was in the marching band and then quit. Kate refuses to give the box of stuff to Sam, so she's going to have to go to the game to give it to this person dina sees sam at a candlelight vigil before the game for the murders to my surprise sam is actually samantha frazier portrayed by welch the two fight with dina being jealous that she saw sam with her new boyfriend a fight breaks out ending everything and forcing both sides to go home sam's boyfriend of peter who's portrayed by jeremy ford follows the bus in his car with him is a friend and sam the people on the bus fight back, and it causes a car accident. Dina gets the bus to stop to check on Sam, though. Now, she gets blood on the ground and gets a vision of a witch. So, it should be pointed out here that Shadyside has a history. A witch by the name of Sarah Fear, portrayed by Elizabeth Scopel, was executed. Since then, periodically, spree killers will pop up, giving this place the nickname of Killer Capital USA. Dina and her friends start to see someone wearing the same outfit that Ryan was when he killed at the mall. He isn't the only supposedly dead killer making an appearance, though. These teens will need to fight for survival and get to the bottom of this before it is too late. So that's where I'm going to leave my recap, and where I want to start is saying that this is an interesting film. It feels like it is directed at teens while also giving a bit of blood and gore for more seasoned horror fans to enjoy. I even like this idea of a curse that involves a witch as well. There are some things with this enough to make me want to watch the next two for sure. What I will say is, though, I didn't like everything. For one, since we've gotten things like Stranger Things, they go too heavy with the nostalgia. I like many of the songs that are played as they're of the era. The problem is that they keep hitting you in the face with it. There are a lot of references as well that I felt were a bit too heavy-handed. I don't completely hate this, but it would work better to tone that down a bit. Now, something else that doesn't fully work is I don't think that I'm the target audience. I'm not going to hold this against the film, but the writing feels directed towards teens a bit more than I would like. I don't mind us having a lesbian couple at the heart of this, especially since we are trying to normalize this so it isn't a big deal. Bowie tries to shock you with it, though, by calling her Sam, and when you see her kissing Peter, you think it's him you're focusing on. 
there are a bit of some other things here that are happening that I don't fully buy. The way characters talk is a bit childish and not necessarily realistic. It doesn't actually feel like there was a football game, but there just wasn't a people there for me to believe that. It just takes some of the realism away from me. So that should be enough for the story, so I'll take this to the acting. It is interesting to have Hawk here in the beginning since we know her from Stranger Things. It feels like they're going for like a Psycho or Scream where we have a bigger name. This isn't a problem for me though. What I did have an issue with though was our lead of Medria. She complains so much and I didn't care for her character. Now this could actually be more of the writing and not necessarily her performance, but it's just problematic as our lead here is I just don't like her so it's tough for me to kind of rally behind. But I did think that Flores, Reinwald, Hectiker, and Welch were all fine. I also thought that all the killers were cool since we are getting such different eras and types of movies for these killers to be from. I thought the cast was fine just overall, despite my issue that I did have. And the last thing I'll go into would be the effects, cinematography, and soundtrack. For the former, I believe that they're getting a blend of CGI and practical. To be honest, I didn't have problems here. This movie does become a bit of a slow burn where we don't get kills for a stretch. It doesn't ruin the movie because of how will they end things. The cinematography is solid as well as framing things certain ways, especially when you're dealing with CGI. I do like the soundtrack as there are songs that I'm a big fan of here. It just does go a bit heavy handed as I said. So then before I close this out here, I'm going to do a little bit of trivia here for you. Now in the opening scene, the bookstore shelves are filled with Fear Street books with the author listed as Robert Lawrence. The letters RL and RL Stein's name stand for this. The Fear Street book the woman buys is from Heather is the wrong number. It was originally published in 1990. This is the fifth book of the original series and the main character in the book is named Dina. The skull face costume is inspired by Halloween Night 2 from the Point Horror book series. Despite the title's name, we actually don't have anything focused on Shadyside as a whole, not actually the Fear Street itself, or even mentioned. We do have the popular Konomi Code is repeated by Josh quite a bit. Despite taking place in 1994, there are some songs that actually are not from that. Like, I'm Only Happy When It Rains by Garbage or More Human Than Human by White Zombie weren't released until 95. And there's some other songs that were released later as well. The neighbor that Kate drops off her babysitting charges with a nurse, Mary Lane, Ruby Lane's mother, she's the only seen briefly in this movie, but has a larger part in the second one in the trilogy, I guess. The town of Shadyside, Ohio really exists, but it's actually considered to be part of Wheeling, West Virginia. However, there were no European settlers in the area until 1879. Ohio itself was not settled by Europeans until after the American Revolution, and there was never any witch hangings in the state. The director and co-writer here was a teenager in 94 and drew from her own personal experiences. One of the posters in Dina's room is the 10th anniversary of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which depicts the characters in Barbie-style dolls on a four-tier chocolate cake. And then the people of Heather and Ziggy in this movie were actually in Stranger Things as well. So that's all I'm going to do here for the you know trivia and everything. The other ones on there are spoilers. So in conclusion here, I did enjoy this movie. I like that we're introducing here for the next two movies and The Curse of This Witch and The History of Killers. This movie, though, isn't necessarily directed at me with how it is set up and written. I'm not a fan of our lead here, but the rest of the cast is fine. The effects were good along with the cinematography. The soundtrack and nostalgia are forcing in this movie a bit much, but, you know, not to the point where it completely ruins it. For me, I'd say this is an above-average movie, so my rating here for Fear Street Part 1, 1994, is going to be a 7 out of 10. 
So I'm not going to do a spoiler section here, as I don't really think I necessarily need to delve into anything deeper here. So what I'm going to do is get you over to a very brief break before I close out the show. Journey with a Cinephile. I would like to welcome you back one last time, and then just to close everything out here for episode 105, if you'd like to send me an email with any sort of feedback or anything that you'd like to have read on the show, just let me know, and you can send that to journeywithacinephile at gmail.com, all one word. If you'd like to read any of the reviews from this episode or any of the past episodes, that's Reviews of the Dead, and that's horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, I'm David Mishkin Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. And over there, I will be doing all of my horror and non-horror reviews on that app. And then if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, it's David OSU87 is my personal one. And then the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram is Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. And over there, I'll be posting the movie posters of anything that I am reviewing. And the last thing I'd ask you to do is that whatever podcatching device you listen to me on, if you go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode, as well as you're able to rate and review just so I can figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like, and that way I can also get out to more listeners out there as well. And then just to make everything easier, I will have all of those links in the show notes for you. So then for episode 106, that is going to be Italian Horror number 10, and the two featured reviews that I'm going to have over on that is going to be Fear Street Part 2, 1978. I believe that's the year that that is like the subtitle for it. And I'm also going to pair that up with another giallo of Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I Have the Key. I think I said that title right. So that's another one I've never seen before, but pretty excited to check both of those out. Don't really think there's anything else I need to get you up to speed with here, except I will say is that the first three mini reviews that you'll hear on the next episode actually were watched for the most part in October. I just trying to get this episode out here i decided to go ahead and break it up and give myself a little bit more time for some of that just so you know let you peek behind the curtain there for a bit but i will also have more mini reviews on top of that really think that's all i need to get you up to speed with here so what i will say in closing is that whatever you do today i hope you're safe in doing it have a great time out there this is your tour guide of david garrett jr and i am signing off it had been a wonderful evening and what i needed now to give it the perfect ending 